Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, please forgive my computer on the screen here. We've been out at our, my mother's camp at Lake Superior where there's no electricity and no paper to print, and so I did some thinking by the lake but put it on a computer. Um, so I, uh, and I also brought my Bible, which I'll turn on right now. Um, this is the modern age we live in. My name is Russ White, and uh, I grew up here in Marquette, um, went to school in Marquette, and um, then have been for the last 21 years in Kenya, East Africa, doing medical mission work. And um, I'm there with my wife, and well, we had five children. Our second was just married, and so we're going to have one left at home, and even her, she's going to boarding school this year. Uh, in Nairobi when starting ninth grade. So we'll be sort of an empty nest family, which is quite a change uh, for us. Um, we've been out, I've been out with five guys out at the, the camp all week long. My back is killing me, my legs are killing me, my shoulders are killing me, but we finished a project. We took a sauna Friday night and Saturday night after uh, building all of this. So it was a successful week. Uh, I fly out, out tonight back to uh, Rhode Island, and then the day after tomorrow, get my knee replaced, and then two weeks later, fly back to Africa. So we're trying to wrap things up and then head back overseas for the work there. The last time I was with you was in August of last year, and at that time, I spoke about motivation and missions, and I spoke about some of the general and specific ways in which God leads He's led me and my family to Africa and the ways in which he leads us in all of our missions in this life. <clears throat> and today I'm going to look at a little more deeper theology. I, I enjoyed hearing Chris Mauser last week get into some deep things, and, and uh, so I thought we'd follow that up. I'm going to talk a little more about the theological underpinnings of why we do what we do. Why, from a theological basis, did I go to Africa? Why do you do what you do in life? Now, many of you know my brothers, two in particular, who are, who are missionaries as well, one in Scotland, one in Germany. They're the theologians of the family. Wes is an Old Testament theologian, and Joel is the New Testament theologian. And I'm just the dumb one who cuts people open and digs around in their hearts and brains and abdomens. So... Uh, I won't uh, bore you with all of their Hebrew and Greek detail that they would get into. Uh, but I know you have people within the church doing some of that. I know Chris is leading a group of young men, uh, perhaps older men as well, uh, looking into systematic theology. I really do believe that our deeper theology underlies much of what we do in life. And the question we're going to look at today can make a massive, massive difference in how we find the proper balance in life to bring glory to God and to grow in our own lives spiritually. If we get this question wrong, and many, many people get it wrong, it can massively affect how we live our lives. So, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Wow, that's uh, about 2,000 years of debate. Right there. Uh, that can and does and continues to split believers and split churches and divide Christians all over the world. One of the classic questions. And 
There are times I think, let's just leave that alone. Let's not even touch that. Just stay out of it. Let, let my brothers argue about that. But I think it honestly does affect deeply what we do in our lives. The, the classic question, which has been debated and put by people for years, could be summed up something like this. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God or do you believe in the free will of man? Essentially, do you believe the divine sovereignty of God in which God is in absolute control over the universe down to the fall of a single sparrow to each hour of every day and each second and every breath of your life? Do you believe that? Or, some would say, do you believe that man has free will, that man has the power to make individual choices that affect the outcome of events in this world, and likewise, they therefore carry significant responsibility. That's what people have put for millennium. What I hope you will see by the time we're done today is that if you choose one or the other of those alone, you will find yourself in a bad spot. If you pick one or the other, you're going to find yourself in a bad spot. You'll find yourself in a completely unacceptable state. If you choose either one of these by themselves, you'll find yourselves unable to get out of bed in the morning, unable to carry on with the basics of life. Because think about it. If we go with option one in the way we framed this this morning, God is sovereign in complete control. He controls absolutely everything, and your choices and your actions are essentially meaningless. God will do what God will do, absolutely with no regard to your actions or choices. So if you go to Africa as a missionary, if I go to West Pokot, which is a very remote part of West Africa, if I take trainees from the Maasai country and, and teach them to be surgeons, if we develop a whole new hospital there, it really makes no difference because God is going to do what God is going to do. If God chooses to save those people, he will do it with or without me. And if he chooses not to save them, then nothing, nothing I do or think or beg or plead will change that outcome. It's the same with you. If you go to work in the morning, or if you don't go to work, it makes no difference whatsoever. Why even get out of bed in the morning? Eventually we find that, as Solomon said, all is vanity and chasing the wind. And we do whatever brings us pleasure in the moment logically concluding that our temporal actions really have no positive or negative effect on eternal outcomes. Okay, so that's option one. Sounds a little extreme, a little bad, doesn't it? Option two, your actions and your choices do have ultimate power in the world about what does or does not happen. If you don't go to Africa today, now, People will die and go to hell because of your inaction. There will be people who you did not share with in Walmart who will go to hell, and you will be responsible for that because you did or didn't do something because 
It's all about your free will. Think about that. In my work, if I cut the wrong vessel, which I've done before, if I cut the pulmonary vein because it's encased with tumor and I'm trying to get an esophageal cancer out, that patient's going to die, probably. Why? Because of my actions. I cut that tumor. I cut that pulmonary vein. Think about all kinds of things in life. Years ago, the shuttle uh, Challenger disaster, if some of you remember that, when that exploded in front of the world, that went back to a single O-ring. A single O-ring somebody hadn't fitted correctly destroyed that entire thing. If you go to the World Trade Center, 9-11, the, sh the simple not sharing of information between the CIA and the FBI had a massive effect that eventually allowed 9-11 to happen. Our actions can have significant consequences. I went in 1981 to Chehi's Summer School of Music as a 17-year-old. I, I thought about not going that summer because I had some issues going on, but I went. And lo and behold, I met a girl named Beth Dupre. I got married to her four years later, and we have five children. What if I hadn't gone? That would have changed everything. So where do we find ourselves in the middle of this? My choices will ultimately lead to potentially great things or potentially disastrous things. And I have no way of knowing which. So again, I'll be paralyzed with fear. So which is it? Is God ultimately sovereign? Or do you have choices that have meaning and your choices have significant bearing upon the outcomes in this life and the next? And do you therefore carry responsibility? This is what we're looking at today. So I'd like to ask two people. Could I have you two people please come up? Just, just here. This is going to be very simple. You're not going to be put on display, but uh, we're going to... Uh, sure, one of you stand here, one stand here. It's just a coin. This is not a trick coin. It's a simple coin, all right? So I'm going to flip it, and then I'm going to ask you, what is it? Is it a heads or a tails? Do you agree with that? My perspective. So you think it's a head? I do. And you... You two are standing in the same room. Can you not agree simply on that? Who's the stronger willed of the two? I don't agree. You can't agree because from your perspective, you are absolutely correct. And from yours, you are absolutely correct. You can have a seat. <laughs> so a simple flip of a coin can be affected. We generally think, I mean, how hard can that be? It's either heads or it's tails. That is true by human logic and from the right perspective. It's one or the other. But you just had two seemingly intelligent people who disagreed about whether it's a heads or a tails. They cannot agree upon that. Each group is only seeing the coin from their perspective, from their point of view, to give an answer. Our perspective is important in life. This is a picture of a skull. This is a, an x-ray of a skull. And it's plain x-ray. It's not that impressive, but uh, there's a little, if you see that very white thing in the sinus, that's in the maxillary sinus on the left side. It's like there's a foreign body, but from this perspective, it doesn't look all that alarming. 
Now, if you change the point of view, if you just move 90 degrees and look again, it now looks like that. That's the same x-ray. So that's an arrow through somebody's head, which viewed from one angle doesn't look so bad. If you look at it from the front, it's hard to see, but there's an arrow sticking out right below his eyeball. From the side, after we've taken it out the back, it looks significantly different. The exact same situation seen from a different point of view. So let me ask you a few questions. Uh, I see Carl Kitta sitting there. Carl, do you, do you love your wife or do you enjoy your work? <laughs> We're not getting an answer. How about somebody else? Do you, do you want to teach your children about justice or do you want to teach them about mercy? Do you want to be a man of prayer or do you want to be a man of action? Do you want to obey the law and pay your taxes or do you want to be generous and give to the poor and needy? What, what is common to all of those questions that I've put before you? What's common to them? Well, what's common to them is they all have what we would call a fallacy of bifurcation. We're oversimplifying a problem making a dichotomous choice that doesn't have to exist. So if I ask Carl, do you love your wife or do you enjoy your work? He's not sure what to say, you know. What he can say is, that's a bad question. That's just a bad question, because you phrase that in an either-or sort of a way. Imagine, um, if you will, a, a football pitch, or a, this is a soccer pitch uh, in Europe, we would talk about soccer. Here we can talk about football. And you have two teams going in opposite directions trying to cross the finish lines. What if the referees decided that the finish lines were on the north and south instead of on the east and west, but didn't tell anybody that? It'd be chaos. You'd have everybody going out of bounds scoring points and everybody running the wrong directions, and no one would know what was going on because you've simply changed the way you're looking at the field. You've changed your perspective. This is what we often do in life. We phrase questions in such a way as to create chaos and confusion and division rather than to reveal truth and bring understanding. Some of the words you might have heard that would go along with this would be classic Arminian teaching or classic Calvinist teaching. And I'm not here today to bash one or the other. I am saying, though, if... if from an Arminian perspective, pure extreme Arminian, if I don't go out and tell others, individuals will go to hell and I'll be responsible. If I make the wrong choice, if I marry the wrong person, if I don't go to the right date, if I don't go out to the dance and meet the girl, well, you shouldn't meet them at the dances, to church, youth group, and meet that girl, your life's going to be screwed up forever. You just can't fix it. On the other hand, if I take that other extreme of, of the extreme Calvinist position, I, I have a nephew who, who takes that position really mostly to justify things. And I remember talking to him one day, and he, he, had his, he and his brother were fighting about whose cigarettes were whose. And I said, you know, might it please God more if you just stopped smoking cigarettes? And he said, no, nothing. All our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. It, it means nothing. Nothing we do pleases or changes God. Anything God says. And he says, you know, in fact, even you missionaries, you know, I, I think you're doing some good work, but honestly, it really makes no difference. You see, you're really stuck in this spot. 
Isaiah said that the kind of fast that God desires is to free the captives, feed the hungry, heal the sick, and to do justice. What we do can please God or displease God. And when I asked my nephew, do you think God would be more or less displeased if you quit smoking? He said, well, I'd probably, if he'd be pleased, he'd probably be more pleased by that. I said, that's right, you can actually affect God. I remember a friend of mine had a, a child hit by a drunk driver and killed. Killed on the highway. And the well-meaning pastor who was counseling them as a family came and talked to them and said to them, at least we know that this was God's will. Take comfort in knowing that this was God's will. Now, he was well-intentioned. He was trying to convey that God is sovereign and God is in control. But personally, I don't think he said it very well at all. Because this whole issue of will, we get really confused. Was it God's will for a child to be hit by a drunk driver and killed? Really? God chose that? God desired that? God wanted that? All of these things are a problem because of what we mean when we say God's will. So we're going to look at two passages of Scripture that will help us see how we've been guilty of both of these errors in our lives in taking one extreme or the other. And we're going to start in this Jeremiah passage, 18. In Jeremiah 18, 1 through 6, which was read for you already, the lesson God was teaching Jeremiah was essentially this. Cannot God choose to do whatever he chooses with the clay he's fashioned? Who's the clay? You and I are the clay. So in verses 1 through 6, God said to Jeremiah, go, go down and see the potter, see what he's doing. And I think the, the, the Holy Spirit spoke to, to Jeremiah as he was standing there. And he said, can't the potter reshape that piece of clay any way he wants? I'm the potter, you're the clay. Is not God sovereign? He can do with your life whatever he chooses. But then, read verses 7 through 10. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do. Do you see the key word in that passage is if. If my people will do this, I will bless them. Our response to God makes an enormous difference. Your response to God can make him, according to this scripture, relent of his plans. Some translators translate that as repent. Can you imagine God repenting of something? But of course, it's, again, it's the, we get to the issue of our languages and how they differ, and you can affect God's mind and God's changing his mind based on your action. In this passage, how did the people respond? Well, in verses 11 or 12, he says, Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. 
Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. God knows how they will respond. But Scripture does not indicate that God forces his decision upon those people. Do you see the message God is giving in this short passage to Jeremiah? As commentators will tell you, this passage, perhaps more than any other in all of Scripture, tells us clearly that God is ultimately sovereign and is in control of all that happens in this life. He can do with the clay as he chooses. However, it also tells us that our choices, our decisions, our actions can change the course of history, can change the actions of God Almighty. Because if we don't believe the two of them together, we're stuck. We're just stuck unless we can take those two seemingly contradictory thoughts and bring them together and say, I will hold them both. We're going to look briefly at Acts chapter 27 as well. Acts chapter 27. In this chapter, Paul was taken prisoner in Jerusalem. He was a prisoner in Jerusalem um, where the people sought to kill him. The Roman soldiers arrested him and were planning to beat him and torture him to confess why he was creating such a disturbance. And then Paul tells them that he's a Roman citizen. He claims his Roman citizenship. And he's eventually transported to Felix in Caesarea where he was kept for two years. He was kept waiting for trial. Festus takes over from Felix and examines Paul. The Jews want to take him back to Jerusalem to be tried, but they're not really secretly planning, they're secretly planning to ambush him. And Paul then appeals to Caesar as a Roman citizen. And so Festus sends him to Caesar. That's the background. And the first part of chapter 27 describes the beginning of the trip to Rome. They stay in Crete, and the annual time of storms in the Mediterranean Sea is coming, so November is coming for them. Paul suggests that they stay in Crete until the season passes, and then they would push on. But they decided not to do that. <coughs> um, so when we get to chapter 27, verse 13... We see that they've gone on ahead. Uh, supposing they obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it. So they were stuck. They were in a terrible storm. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned." And since they'd been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, for I have faith in God, but we must run aground on some island. So interesting. He says, you will not perish. You are going to go stand before Caesar in Rome, Paul, and tell these men this. And then you look at something else that happens. 
Um, if you look at verses 30 through 31. So the sailors thought, this isn't going to work well. So as they were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And so the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Do you hear what was happening? Paul said, God told me that this ship will, the people on this ship will be saved. God told me that. God's in control. Then the sailors decide they're going to sneak off in the night. And Paul says, if they do that, everyone will be lost. Well, which is it? Is God changing his mind? He said they'll all be saved. And now Paul's saying you'll die if you do this. They're both true. God gives a promise with that if you listen to me, if you follow me, I will bring you life. If you obey me, I will bring you life. Does that mean that our actions force God to do something? No. But our actions affect Him. God's will. We use this term so frequently that we forget that this is a complex concept due to the nature of an eternal God and due to the limitations of language. Is it God's will that some people should go to hell? Some would say, yes. There's plenty of Scripture you can go to. Passages of Scripture describe those created for destruction and God hardening Pharaoh's heart. However, you can also look at other Scripture that would make it very difficult to come to that conclusion. Look at, look at 2 Peter chapter 3. And if I look at 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 8, we read this. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God doesn't want or will, if you want to choose that word, that any should go to hell. That's clear from Scripture. The fact is clear, and this is going to sound like heresy, God doesn't always get what he wants. Doesn't that sound almost like heresy? God doesn't get what he wants. Does he want you to sin? No, he doesn't. But you do, and I do. When we think of it that way, is God in control and know what I'm going to do? Yes, he does. And those are two thoughts that we can't bring together. We say, well, you've got to pick one or the other, so I'm going to pick this camp and I'm going to pick this camp and we're going to fight and split our churches over that because we can't fit these together. If I look, let me read for you a passage from one of the commentators. He said, in this motif of Second Peter, human moral agency is emphasized. While a day of judgment is reserved for the ungodly, it is not God's will that they perish. Rather, these that have brought condemnation on themselves. Divine sovereignty does not cancel out human freedom to make moral decisions or the need to cultivate 
the moral life. It should be emphasized that Second Peter eludes both, and I would insert extreme Calvinist and extreme Arminian attempts to systematize and isolate divine and human action because our minds can't put that together. If you think of the parable of the lost sheep, that parable teaches us that God is seeking after the one missing, hoping and hoping and trying. He wills that none should perish. Think about the the scripture that almost all of us have memorized at some time in your life, John 3.16, For God so loved the world, that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Now some would say, and if you're of an extreme Calvin position, you would say, yeah, but that's only for the elect. And we could get into deep, deep thoughts here that that's only, that's the L of the Calvinist tulip, which is limited atonement, which essentially says this, Since the elect were chosen before the foundation of the world, how can Christ honestly be said to have died for all men? Put another way, how could Christ design that that which by virtue of his omniscience he knew would never come to pass? And the great theologian Hodgson, Charles Hodge, says this, it's argued that the nature of a ransom is such that when paid and accepted, it automatically frees those for whom it is intended. No further obligation can be charged against them. Now, if the death of Christ was a ransom for all alike, not just for the elect, then it must be the case that all are set free by the work of the Holy Spirit. Do you hear the problem with this? This is trying to take human reasoning to fit God's plan within a framework. And once again, a framework is not such a bad thing. Again, Chris Mauser is working on systematic theology. That's a framework to consider things and help us organize our thoughts. (coughs) But when we forget that we're trying to put an eternal God into a frame that our minds can wrap itself around, we get ourselves into trouble. John 3.16, God loved the entire world world. Do you hear the tension there? If we believe, we will not perish. If we do not believe, we are condemned already. You feel the tension? That's okay, because God's thinking is above our thinking. Perspective makes a big difference. How we look at things. We saw that if you look at an arrow from one direction, or another direction, it looks vastly different. What is God's perspective? It's vastly different than that. You know, occasionally people come along who can see in much greater depth and intricacy than others. I think of someone like Albert Einstein, who he came along, and he was one of the first people to come up with the the theory of general relativity, which says that time is actually relative. Not many humans can comprehend that. Because we think in time. When I say, did you come to church yesterday or the day before? You're going to, you have a, if I ask that to God, it's a whole different, did you, are you coming tomorrow or did you come yesterday? He'd say, I am. (laughs) So, well, that's a dumb answer. That's God's answer. Yesterday and today and, and tomorrow are the same to God. He, 
every now and again, somebody comes along who's able from a human perspective to get a little bit of that thinking. Stephen Hawking, who recently died, theoretical physicist and not a Christian and a cosmologist, um, he set out to combine the theory of the very large relativity and the very small quantum theory in what he calls, his book is entitled, The Theory of Everything. It's quite a title to put on your book. He cannot even speak, as you know, he couldn't speak. But he could imagine things far beyond the scope of nearly every other human being on this planet. He talked about string theory in eight dimensions, and we, we can't even comprehend that. But you know, from God's perspective, I think, when God looks down at Stephen Hawking, and Albert Einstein, and compares them to a child with Down syndrome with an IQ of 40, he sees no difference at all. He sees no difference whatsoever. Because his perspective is so different. And as we close here today, let's look at what God's perspective is from Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. God's thinking is so far above ours, we cannot comprehend it. Such knowledge is too high, we cannot attain it. So is God sovereign? Of course he is. Or, does man have a will to make independent choices? The answer is yes to all. Yes to all. And unless we can hold those things in our mind, or at least understand the mystery that they are there, we will be stuck. This is what has created division in our churches for so long. And it's okay that we cannot fully reconcile these two truths. Is it God's will that a child is struck and killed by a drunk driver? Is it God's will that a child is kidnapped and raped? which I see all the time in Africa, is it God's will that Boko Haram steals young boys and girls? No, it's not God's will. Yet is God in control? Yes. God is sovereign. And it's okay that we can't fully comprehend that. Such knowledge is too high. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word which challenges our hearts and our minds. Help us, Lord, uh, even in your scripture, Paul said, help me to know the love of God which is beyond knowing. Lord, help us to know that you are ultimately sovereign and that our actions have responsibilities associated with them and they move the heart of God. May our praise and our blessing this day bring praise and honor to your name. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.